Hello everyone! We are back, the Working Audio Tools is back. Last week we had Dan Warl on and this week I have got an even bigger engineer in the form of MSM. Now, he is a very humble man, however this is my job to kind of, you know, butter this up a little bit just so kind of like you know who this man is. Now, this man is somebody I wanted on uh, this podcast specifically because his story is so inspiring. Now, there are many, many people that, again, we get on this podcast and they do the normal, you know, start off as an intern or a T-boy in the studio and work their way up. This man genuinely started from his bedroom. We're talking the start of Grime and has built his way up into the studio that he's in now. Tell me the artists that you've worked with, right? Just like a long list off the top of your head. Some weird ones I'm going to throw in. Um, uh, it started with my, like, I grew up with... Jamie, Skepta, um, Black the Ripper was one of my best friends growing up. Um, then I met Chipmunk. And so through that was the grime world and the grime scene. So everyone you can imagine. I don't think there's many people in that world that I haven't worked with. And then it led to stuff like um, Nicki Minaj. Uh, what else did I do? Mob Deep, Drake, P. Diddy, Rick Ross, Lil Baby, Mahalia. Um, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Professor Green as well. You've done Professor Green. He's a good pal of yours as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a good friend. He's a good friend. I still owe him £20 because <laughs> he gave me £20 to do a mix in like 2007 <laughs> and I never did it. He did, yeah. What's that with inflation now? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> and a platinum record tied to it. I think you need yeah. to uh, put a zero or two on that. Yeah, so loads of people. I've done, I've done like um, a Punjabi album. I was doing stuff with Rishi Rich. I was doing, I've done a lot of band stuff with indie bands for a phase where I had long hair and I was trying to- What indie bands did you just, do? You know, started through Andy Nicholson, the old bass player of the Arctic Monkeys. Right, okay. So he was friends of a, a friend of mine called Tom Pryor and they were just doing all of this different stuff for me at the time. And I was like, okay, let me try it. I come from a world of, my dad's a professional guitarist. That's how my family have what they have. My uncle's the same. So guitars and live music has actually always been there. I know I said the story in Thing in a magazine about um, stealing a car and whatnot, whatnot. But I always had a household of like, my coffee table was like a H&H amp, for example. My <laughs> mum used to moan about it. Like, there's amps everywhere. There's black boxes everywhere. Like she hated it. So I always had the, the liking to the equipment and stuff, the nerding off. But you know, it's like you're a teenager and you just think, oh, I'm going to go against everything I'm told. So you lot want me to do guitar lessons and music. Well, I'm, I was robbing houses and cars. <laughs> and then it kind of went down the full circle. And then I found that mixer. Anyway, I always wanted to do guitar-based music at some point because of that with my dad. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to find the, the way to do it, basically. And Andy was it. Andy, I was like, oh, my God, shit, you're Andy Nicholson for the Arctic Monkeys. And then he just said, yeah, you're good. I'm scratching my head thinking, you what? you're good. And then it just turned into this, like, he liked what I had done. I liked what he'd done. We're very similar because he'd left Arctic Monkeys and he's, he's Mr. Humble in the background. I was doing the same. And it became like a humble competition of like, who can compliment the other person more about what they've done and not accept the compliments. And anyway, yeah. Sounds so like being Paul. Of, I know. Yeah, yes, totally. very much so. Yeah. So through him, I did a lot of, well, around that period. But I would say he was key to it because he inspired me. He made me think, oh, I can do this. You know, I'd never really... I mean, I'd done it before guitar work, but I haven't ever like said, I'm going to produce an album for a band, um, which I'm not going to say the name of it now, because if you go and find it, it's... I don't know what it sounds like now. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to think. This is like 12, 13 years ago. Now, what interests me is, 
like how you manage to go genuinely from like skepta in your in your bedroom to like where you are now now i I know there's an interesting story that we were talking about now where was it in america that you went to again because you you you, because you had your studio and you left everything like you sold everything to go to america and to there's more so so before that i would say think of it as the bedroom side of life i was 14 right something like that i was you know doing all the things that a 14 year old does I had decks, like I was DJing a little bit. My dad was making music live. And we used to go studio with him sometimes. He had friends that were in that, that world. But I wasn't ever going to take it seriously. Fast forward to the thing with the car, and I ended up with this big Soundcraft mixer. There's like a, it's like chapters. So the first chapter was that, the Soundcraft mixer at home. Then we got a commercial studio, and I think it was Wiley that made me do it. He got tired of arguing with my mum about smoking weed and just being in the house. and. <laughs> humans basically my mom was like british problems keep doing this there's like (laughs) there's 30 people standing outside the front door waiting to come and record a verse like we look like we're selling drugs yeah and the area is just going what is going on like so wiley says look we need to get you out of here you're good this must be around 2004 5 so i'm about two years in and i was like okay what the how we get a studio found somewhere rented it out and I must have been about, I don't remember, 17 or 16, something around that age. That only lasted like six months. And then MTV did an article on JME at the time, who was a friend of mine and was coming up like he was blowing up on the underground. And the show was called About to Blow. But at the beginning of the show, they're outside our studio and they've kind of like filmed how you get in, you know, the little sped up shot, yeah. like, hey, welcome to my studio. And then they've sped up to my room. That room because it's now on MTV and everyone's a bit, you know, young and dumb. And I'm still robbing houses at this point in my life. I was still like, if somebody said there was things in there, I was just, I don't know what was wrong with me. Anyway. Is this the studio that um, got robbed? Yeah. So then I just turned around one day and I just see 15 guys with screen masks on. Wow. And then you can figure the rest out. So after that happened, I was like, I knew who it was and everything, but I had decisions to make. I was like, all right, okay, cool. What are we going to do? The young me's thinking, let's go and do the worst. But I've also got Wiley and Jamie like, no, come on. Like, we're just about making some progress here. I remember Jamie and my dad went to Digital Village in Barnet and just rebought me a studio. Like, they felt like we just have to give him something just to pick up the pieces. It wasn't anything crazy. It was like a Focusrite Voice Master Pro, a Rode NT1, and I think like a Mackie controller just because it had moving faders or something silly. It wasn't anything crazy. Set that back up. And then within maybe two months of making that decision of going back to working from home at this point, so I've gone back to my mum's, Wiley brings me Chipmunk and says, you need to work with this kid. He's going to be sick. Trust me, I'll pay for everything. He didn't pay for shit. He just told me that. (laughs) And then I just inherited Chipmunk. And within, and from there, I'd say within a year and a half, I had a number one song. What was was that song? What was the hit again? Because I'm trying to think from the top. That was Oopsie Daisy. That was it, Oopsie Daisy. But in that, in the year and a half, there'd been singles that were like, oh my God, I'm, I'm meeting the labels now. And I'm no longer just working with my friends in the grand world that we all know. That we, and, and also, bearing in mind, we felt that there was a glass ceiling above our heads anyway mm-hmm. at the time. So I don't know that that's ever going to go anywhere. I'm just looking at, oh shit, what I want to do, which is not be a, I don't want to be a rapper. I don't want to be a beat maker or none of these things. I want to be in the industry and do studio work. The way in, I'm now seeing, oh, Sony want to talk to me. This label want to talk to me. I'm having the A&Rs come to my house, taking their shoes off and coming upstairs in the bedroom studio. <laughs> and I'm like, 
something's really going on here. So I've left the concept of getting those guys back to robbing the studio now. Now I'm like, we need to focus. So the number one happened, uh, but I didn't, I didn't make no money, nothing. Mm. Bollock all. Like, I charge Chip, if I'm honest, £75 a song for that whole album. <laughs> Which actually was probably like a half decent rate, was it? Or at the time? It was, it's like, no. Nah, don't, I just didn't know the business. This is what, so the side, the side of it that we're talking about when we say like, oh, he's come up this way and he didn't do the intern. I had nobody to tell me what a mix should yeah. be. I had nobody to explain to me when the difference of a mix and a master was. Because up until that oopsie daisy, everything I'd recorded, mixed, mastered, put out, and I didn't know they were even separate processes. All it was is, like Jamie puts it, we were just more bored than most kids. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I'm more bored than you. I'm going to just figure this out. So we'd go out in the daytime, whatever, whatever. Jamie would come, maybe record a verse, leave. I'd go out in the evening, smoke weed with all my friends, come home, put my headphones on. Everyone's asleep in my house. I'm up till four in the morning just learning what an EQ mm. does and how it makes his voice sound good. The next day I say, come round, I've, I've, I've finished the song. I, we didn't know there was even processes. So when this chip situation happens and all of a sudden there's a number one, I wasn't mixing those songs. Mm. They took it away from me and gave it to Spike Stent, who's now a fucking friend of mine. The world is weird. I had recorded it, did all the vocal production. They called me into the mix sessions because Chip was like, look, I can't leave M out of it. He still needs to have his mm. input. Oh, good luck. But that was still a period in time where you had, the, the mix for them was, you guys have done the rough. We're going to book an A room for the day with a console. It was still console mixing. By, the, by about 6, 7 p.m. every day, we were printing the mix. Right. You probably had an hour to come in and make your changes and make your notes. And we didn't know no better. Chip would come in, meet me there. I'd been there since the morning. He'd say, I want to turn the background vocals up. M, what do you think? And it's not like it was now where we're listening to the rough. We're doing this all off memory. Yeah. We're just listening to this new version of the song going, because we don't even know we can compare to the rough. And, and you're in the we room with Spike every day doing Spike this. Spike was in, I don't know where he was. It was his assistant at the time, Lex. But Spike was mixing, and I remember he'd done the singles, and I think Lex did some of the other ones. I don't remember the whole thing. I didn't meet Spike at the time, but I remember that. I, I remember even being told at the video shoot, they were like, yeah, we might have to get somebody else to mix it. And in hindsight, it was the best decision yeah. they ever made. But it was the day that I decided, oh, I want to learn how to do what this thing is called mixing, because I've been doing it for years, but I, I was like confident for the wrong reasons. Right, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I was in there with my mates. No one had ever told me you're not good enough. If I fucked up a vocal, Skepta does not really care because he's my friend and he'll just laugh at me and say, hey, man, that's shit. <laughs> like, and there's no pressure there. Mm -hmm. It's just like, okay, well, let's go outside and smoke a joint and talk about this later. No one cared. And then if I finished the song, they'd just go put it on radio the next day anyway. Because the aesthetic of it was a bit rough, sometimes there are songs that I've finished a rough mix. The next day I come back to the studio, I found out it's, been played out on like whatever radio station last night. I had no say. I didn't even know crazy. he was going to do that. That quick. Genuinely, but that I quick of a turnaround. That's crazy. Mate, I learned on the job. I found out after the fact all the time. There is so much of my early work that I never got to say I mixed, but people said I did. Yeah. Because I was just in there. You better know how to record, edit, get it loud and bounce it today. High as giraffe pussy as well, because there's 20 people in there smoking weed. <laughs> you, you've got no choice. That's it. Take give me, and burn it on CD, please. We're going. Bye. When the Chip album happened, it was very similar. It was like, get in there, but dedicated to just mixing today. So we load up all the stems, make it sound like whatever. I didn't even know what he was doing. I was just watching, going, huh, I like the look of this. This looks cool. Because it's not what I do. I'm just with plugins at home. 
he's got the real thing. Mm. So a part of what I was talking about earlier about my thing against like tricking people into thinking you need all this shit. It's because I fell for yeah, it. Yeah, I did the same. I thought yeah. you needed all that everyone does. So Chip would come in at the end of the day, approve the mix, off you go, it was done. The album goes out, does really well. I'm now in a place of like, I've got labels that are interested in working with me. I'm getting mixes sent to me. Streaky at the time ended up being my manager. Really? Because oh, Streaky's right. a business. Oh yeah, he's an old friend of mine, but he mastered the album, the, the I Am album, because I went on Gear Sluts and just put an advert out. And I was like, guys, I need somebody to master this album. I didn't want to give it to Spike at the time. So I was trying to find somebody right. privately. Anyway, told the A&R, I want my guy to master it, Streaky. Turns out the A&R knew Streaky from years ago. So he's like, oh, that's fine, no problem. Streaky's like, oh, who's this? You know, who are you, I'm like, some kid that's like, you know, you're bringing me label work and you're sending me <laughs> loads of grind projects. What's the guy? I want to manage you. So I went and met him, said we, was gonna, we made minus money. We didn't make no money. <laughs> but that comes from me turning, that was the ego moment where I was like, oh, I'm, I've done this, I've done that. I'm going to mix for everyone. And I started getting projects in, mixing and just not hearing back mm -hmm. and being like, what is this shit? What's going on here? Like, what? Uh, I'm good. Look at me. I've got, I've got focal twins, event opals. I've got this, I've got that. I've spent a bit of money now. So I'm like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, but I would wing it. So I could go in a session with you from the beginning to the end and make it sound good. But if you sent me your parts and wanted it to sound better than what you did, I just didn't understand the right, process okay. because I've always been in the room with the person from the very beginning to the very end. I'd never separated. Skepta and me, I don't think we've ever done a song where he sent me parts. I don't think that's ever happened once. Right. I've been in the room. That's why I get credited as exec, exec producer because I'm in with him making decisions as he's doing them. I'm like, oh, I think we should try this. And what do you think about that? So up until that point, I didn't know you even separated the process. I knew mastering was separated. I, th that was a massive long story to get but to the important, point of America. But very but, important. Uh, so America came because I met on Twitter, actually, someone was following me who was the engineer for Justice League. And I was listening to them quite a lot at the time. And I was like, oh, okay, what are you doing following me? We got talking, we got on really well. And then it was just a case of like, I think wanting to see what it was like on the other side, because we'd always in, in England up around this point, which is 2010, we're talking about, we still hadn't had our music connected. Yeah. We'd had people from our scene connecting, but not with the music that we'd been making. Even Chip's album, it was a pop album to an extent. Compared to, he had the potential to always do it. Trust me, Chip is a melody guy. He's, you'd be so surprised at the hooks and the harmonies and songs that it's him guiding the singers. They don't ever think that they're bringing him these finished songs and he's just rapping over them. Hell no. And he was like that from a kid. I remember just thinking, right, I want to just see what's going on over there. So we started to work together and it was like sharing projects. He would bring me some of the Justice League projects and I would help assist him on those. I was taking him to, uh, at the time we was at Metropolis doing a lot of Skepta stuff. He would come in on the sessions there. Um, then when we went to the States, I just saw, I think the biggest thing I took from going there was, oh my God, they're all using the exact same shit we're using. But you found that in LA, didn't we, Ed? From what, I, what I've seen a lot in LA is the, the DW Fern Pultex. Like, like for what? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There yeah, was yeah. like the red yeah, ones. like four studios we went in LA. It was like DW Fern Poltex. I've got all of his, um, I've got all of his Hazel Rig stuff upstairs in my recording mm. room. I, I stand by it's one of the most. I don't know what that guy's done. 
It's unbelievable. I haven't tried the big red yeah, yeah, boxes, yeah. the actual DW fern stuff, but as far as I know, this is his technology. But yeah, he's he's amazing. Um, and a lot of them had CL1Bs and just yeah. to stir the pot universal audio stuff. I don't even... I didn't even, I wasn't even saying with the hardware because I've got used to that now. Oh, there's a, hold on. There's a whole missing chapter, Britannia Row. I forgot totally. So in 2009-ish, I met um, a guy called Tony Matthews who used to work at Britannia Row. And I stand by this to this day, like I've got to buy him a car or something because he like, he just out of nowhere just took a liking to me and was like, I believe in you. And I was like, well, okay, who are you? He said, oh, there was a there was basically a friend of mine that was doing a session there was talking about me to him somehow we got in contact with each other and he's like he's rung his postman friend who used to be an engineer who has a pair of ns10s and he's like right go meet this guy pick up some ns10s like, okay when i picked up the ns10s he's like right come and meet me i went and met him and i'm just like who why do you want to help me he just took a liking to me and then eventually he i lived in north like enfield like the northest point of london britannia row was in like wandsworth bridge road the other side of london yeah, it was long He's like, come and meet me. I want to introduce you to the owner. So I went and met Jamie. And I could, Jamie was just like, what's this all about? But Tony was like, look, you need to let him like, have the keys to this place. Like, you've got to let him in. I was thinking, am I going to get a job in a commercial facility? I don't want one if that's what we're doing. Yeah, It's not what I'm here for. But Tony was like, no, you just need to film this. Like, film yourself being here. Like, do sessions. Learn the Neve console. Like, he just wanted to see me develop. So... I then ended up with the keys to Britannia Row and completely free reign of the place. Like I would go there every night in a yellow Mini Cooper that wasn't mine, it was my sister's because I didn't have a car. I used to drag a um, cheese grater, the big one, with my two event Opals every day because I didn't have a laptop. I took my own speakers to my own Mac every single night, probably like an hour and a half drive there, hour and a half drive back. I was fucked every day. And still doing sessions in my studio the next day, but my brain did it because I wanted main monitors and I was trying to understand bass. So I was like, I still didn't understand rooms and translation yet at this point. And I didn't understand that that room was built in the eighties and they didn't care about sub 50 Hertz. They weren't interested. I was though. So I'm in this room with the guy from Justice League, Edward. We're working between my room and that room. And it was just a bit like, I was using the console because it was there, but I don't think it ever made anything better. I did the song, the Skepta P. Diddy song in that room. I filmed it, the, the make, like the mixing of it. But if you watch the video back when I'm watching it, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just there like, I'm, obviously I know turn this up, turn this down, but I have to keep turning to Tony and be like, right, so how do I group these? And what do I do with that? Okay, so how do I get that reverb on here? You can see me just like applying plugging mentality yeah. to the hardware and trying to figure it out. Um, and then, yeah, so... Tony getting me the keys to that place. Jamie probably hated me because it was like every night I would take advantage so of that. Either. He so probably thought I. I was going to come in. <laughs> you trust me, the journey and the, the lugging of the equipment was comedy. Mm -hmm. One, I remember in this period, we decided like we don't need my studio no more, which was maybe I should have kept it a bit longer in hindsight, but we were just like, we don't need it. We've got Britannia Row. Anytime we do mixes, the labels will pay for rooms. It was a very old school mentality, the American side of it. And I was like, okay, fuck it. So I went and got rid of my room. The one I had in, I had another one in Barnet that I'd had for a few years. And just, yeah, like I'd went back to like Britannia Row and a laptop. Like I literally had no equipment. I got rid of everything that I had, just sold it up and was like, and then ended up selling bits, all the stuff that had left over. I was selling it to keep myself afloat because I realized all of a sudden without my recording sessions, I'm not earning. 
because even my crowd and clientele don't understand the, op the idea of separating the processes yet. So I've tried to like force this job amongst my friends. I'm trying to explain to people like, oh yeah, just send me the parts, just record it wherever. But I'm not realizing that they want to be in the yeah, room it's with you. Me. It's just, you're, you're a big part of that, of that sound, yeah. I hadn't, the penny hadn't dropped at this point. I've got my friends telling me that that was the case, but like I said, they're my friends. You're supposed to say this about me. You say good things on, the, on my worst days. So I'm not, it's like I had imposter syndrome with myself. Like I really didn't believe that you could like, I should have kept that studio and kept a, um, well, no, because it all worked out. But, but what I'm saying is, is that the, the low period I had there of like, where is everybody? Well, you've got rid of your fucking studio. You have to travel to South London. I remember I used to pick up Skep, drive there. And just by the time we got there, he'd fell asleep in the car. And he's just like, it kind of killed the mood. Yeah, I know what you mean. We never really did anything good there. It was more just showing off the room to people consistently. Like everyone loved coming there going, oh, this is sick. This is all you, yeah? And I was like, yeah. But it wasn't mine. I wasn't doing any good work. I was just, oh, I'm MSM and I'm boy better know. And I work with Justice League. I was just chatting shit. Nothing was about making music. It was just trying to like, I don't know, I don't know. Which, which is actually life. interesting because in a conversation that we had last week, that's kind of almost a little bit what YouTube has turned into a little bit, you know what I mean? It, what, what do you it mean? is all about, you know, like a lot of YouTube is, it's all about eyeballs. It's all about, look at me, look at this, it's look at this, look I've at this. It's probably why I've struggled so much. It's why I struggled so much with the concept of it. Mm -hmm. I've been asked to do it for years. I've been told for years to do it. If, if to be a successful engineer in this day and age, you have to be on camera screaming it and telling everyone that you're this and you're that, I'm not sure I want to yeah. do it. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. It's not my character. I don't really care enough about that stuff. It's not, that's, I literally care about Nyquist and bloody <laughs> turning this on and off and blind testing people. Yep. And to touch on the Britannia Row thing, just the last thing was, that was where I learned to listen. So Britannia Row and America, Edward didn't teach me, or Justice League didn't teach me anything like do this with an EQ, because I knew all of that. What they would do is just like, can you hear the difference? Is it better or not? And silly things like standing, sitting at the console at Britannia Row, and we would just put the speakers up, and we had one of those little, you know, the, I don't know what they're called, where the screen can just like come in and yeah, out, stuck on mean. the little mount. So we would just stand there behind the console and move the screen behind the speakers, in front, but with your eyes closed. And you could pick it up every time. You're like, oh shit, center image is all gone. Like that moment to me was like, oh, I didn't even know there was one of those things because I've always had shit between my speakers. Holy hell. These were the things I was learning. The same in the States when we were over there and was in Tree Sound Studios and the guy who owned it at the time, oh no, one of the engineers there was like, this is where the room's accurate. And I was like, what do you mean by that? This is where the room's accurate. So I didn't care that they had a pool tech, couldn't give a shit. I cared that they were using Waves Arvox and talking about how the room sounds. And I'm like, I've got Arvox and I've got a room, but I don't know how it sounds. Like, what's going on? So that became, that became like me starting this thing I told you last week, which is my theory on all of this is, this is all fun. This is all fun. I do this because I'm a nerd. I buy this stuff because I liked it as a kid. I, I'm, I've definitely got some form of ADHD that needs to be like fed with things <laughs> otherwise i'm just bored and i'll just go do something else um so that's how this has happened but the reality is from the computer the one and the zero to your eardrum everything's a filter in the middle and my goal has been since i'd say 2012 11 from that britannia row justice league period was like 
remove the filters, or at least understand them enough so that they're predictable. And then from that point on, I can build up my research because that's all I'm doing is like, it's noting things down. You're collecting information as a mixer. You're going, all right, I know that kick drums and snares feel like this. When I do it in this room, I've done all my maths, cool, cool, cool. And I go listen to it at that festival. Cause bear in mind, like I said, I was thrown in the deep end. My shit was being played in festivals, radio, online. I had no say if I couldn't change it. So I've done, I'm doing my research and I'm going, okay, what's, what's keeps, what's messing me up here? And it was always that thing between the eardrum and that. So that's your converters, your room, your speakers, the, the mentality of consistency, just needing to stay in the same spot and just working and learning. So I won the whole America thing sort of when I gave up the idea of going there for good, I went back to the same mum's house bedroom with a laptop, a prism interface, because by now I was like into converters. And I was like, okay, I didn't realize that mattered. And then, yeah, it was just an interface and converters. Sorry, an interface, laptop, speakers. And then I started getting into like room treatment and DSP. And once those two combined, everything else is just like, I've been teaching people that since. Are you set up with Trinov? Yeah, yeah, well, so everything. I've tried them all. I've tried every single one you could imagine under the sun. My current favorite, the actual sound, if you're going to talk about from a consumer, just quick, get it up and running, is Neumann's MA1. I think that thing is just whatever they're doing, it's not even linear. They're not trying to make it flat. They don't try to make it. They even When you see the result, it's got curves and it's got a shape. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've got in they, mind. They just load the room right. Because if you look at my Trinol system, it is curved. I've everything. I basically mix my speakers. So I listen to my references that I know inside out and I EQ every pair of speakers individually until they feel like they're supposed to feel in my room. And then that's when I start my research, basically, you could say. But you can't do it without those things. I just don't believe it. I have friends that are like super acousticians, like the best in the world. We argue about this stuff. Not argue, but we're like, you know, DSP sounds shit. And I'm like, okay, but we can't all have your rooms. Like we have to have a point at where, you know, I would love one of your rooms. And funny enough, he's like, I wouldn't even sell you one then because you don't need it. You don't need it. And so then I'm like, well, what? So yeah, I am, I'm, I'm, Room treatment as much as you can, positioning. Oh my God, I've spent countless days in here with just speakers moving it inch, yeah, inch, measure. Yeah. There's that yeah. guy, um, Carl Tatz, and he's got that room mode calculator. I started with that. And so you just put in the measurements of the room, height, whatever, whatever, and it will give you these lobes basically. And you can pinpoint where there's going to be nulls. And he shows you them left to right, up, down, front to back in the room. So once you follow that, that was like the first thing of me going, oh, okay. Obviously, he doesn't know what the rooms are made of, but like, it seems to have worked. And I found a position that really did work. And then I started, okay, getting into like isolators and floating speakers. And it became a thing of like, well, how far down the rabbit hole yeah. can we go with this digital computer file to my eardrum thing? I almost took it to an audio file mentality. I never got into the cables. Like I tried them, but I didn't care. I was like, okay, I've, I've got 30,000 pounds worth of cables as it is, I don't want to make it 130,000 just because you branded it. I'm all right. I'm, I'm fine. But yeah, I proper went down a rabbit hole and it's been like that ever since. And that was when I started to see income and progress that it was like momentum. It's like a snowball effect. Everything up until then was whether it was me, it was going to, it was going to be me or someone else. You were not going to stop Chipmunk, Jamie, Wiley, no one. I was just in the right room at the right time and was willing to give up my twenties and teens. That's it. 
but I was hanging out with my friends, smoking weed, having a fucking good time. So I just winged it. It's been the last 12 years, I'd say, where I've been like, all right, fucking mixing and, and just doing it like nerding out, nerding out. DistroKid sponsor the Working Audio Tools podcast and you can get 30% off your first year subscription using the VIP link in the YouTube video description and podcast show notes. DistroKid makes distribution of your music easy with unlimited uploads and you get to keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. Join over a million artists who rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram and all other streaming platforms now and in the future. The new DistroKid app is available on iOS. Go and download it from the App Store now. From here you can upload new releases. You can see your DistroKid earnings and withdraw these earnings. You can view and share your hyperfollow links. You can check your streaming statistics from Spotify and Apple and even add and edit lyrics and song titles. So keep track of your releases on the move with the new DistroKid app available on iOS. Download it from the App Store now. At what point do you think you really figured out the translation issue that we all have? I still haven't. I think it goes on forever. I think it goes on forever. I did it recently where I was listening to something I'd done and I was like, I was in Milan. And I heard something I'd done. I was in the little Galleria thing and I was like, I don't like that snare. Wait a second. When I got back and I came in and I listened to it, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And then I started to pinpoint that error when I was mixing at that point. And I was like, how did I have my stuff then? And I've got everything documented. My room is documented. Anytime I remeasure or calibrate anything, I have it saved as to what the room looked like, what the curve right, looked okay. like. So in Rumi Q Wizard, basically, yeah, yeah. just taking measurements with Trinov, without Trinov, with Sonoworks, without Sonoworks, all these different options. And I've gone back and looked at it, and it was the period where I was rolling off too much mid-range in my speakers. Like I was doing the, the, like the not the Harman tilt, it's the B&K yeah, one, yeah, I think. Yeah. I was doing that curve, but I was doing it too early, what it seems like at the right. time. The, the crossover should have been coming later, basically. The point, the dip where it goes at zero. And so, yeah, these things are still ongoing now. I was just talking about another, with another engineer today. He went to a studio recently and he, was, um, he said he heard those Orsbergers, the little near fields, and he loved them. And I was explaining to him how we did a session with them, mains actually, Orsbergers, and somebody had played around with the tuning. He hated the results. He was like, oh, it sounded, how comes they sounded good in this room and shit in that room? And I tried to explain to him. I was like, you can't blame the speakers or the room at this point. Those things come with like software to tune them. If somebody's gone in that room and had a go because they like it to be a certain way and haven't reset it or hasn't reset it before they've left, forget what you, what you did last yeah. time. And this is what I mean about consistency and just knowing what's going on. I, um, I hated leaving this room to people. I built another room just because I was getting annoyed where I'd leave people in it and they'd change oh, stuff. Yeah. I'm coming I would, in like, I, I can't would freak. I would freak my bean. Would... My brain yeah. can't, like, I'm no. like, what have you done? No. What's different? It yeah. doesn't feel right. Like, I need to come in here every day and press play and go, yep, that's my yeah, references. They all sound right. Yeah, so it's it's ongoing, man. I don't think there's ever going to be a... Now the new one is headphones. That's my new one. Flipping hell. That is way worse than rooms and speakers for a rabbit hole. T tell our listeners how many sets you, you've got that you were just telling us off air. Um, so here <laughs> I have... Wait. I've got my... These are NDH phones, which I actually really like. And then over here I've got... There's no need for this stuff. So one two, three, Headmark 1s, Headmark 2s, Audizy, Iassigned, I don't remember what they're called, MX4s, LCDXs, another pair of MX4s, HD800s, HD820s, 
NDH20s. There's more. There's doubles of a lot of this. Now, just a little interlude for you this week. This week and uh, the next three following weeks, we, me and Ed are going to be showing Sonable plugins that we actually use in our own mixes. And this week, I'm going to do a quick run-through of Sonable Smart Limit. Now, what's great about Smart Limit is that you don't need to be a mastering engineer to use it. Basically, what you can do is you can press like the green button, the glorious green button, and um, select a genre profile to prime Smart Limit for your audio material. You can also select a reference track as your profile uh, if there is no suitable profile for your SimSource Universal will work well. But what's great about it is it's got speech, acoustic, classical, country, funk, jazz, Latin, metal, R&B, electronic, EDM, house, techno, pop, you know, 90s, uh, 90s, um, K-pop, Latin pop, rock, alternative, classic rock, punk. And what it will do is it will listen to the source material and then it will give you recommended attack and release times. And it will also... Uh, give you a few extra options. I'll give you the style function. Um, it's got saturation, which again, which we know what that is. Uh, it's got a balance, which is essentially um, like spectral shaping. Think of it like adding a little bit of smart EQ in there. And it's got a bass control, which to my ears adds in a little bit of low end, um, which is then again further controlled by the limiter. There's also a quality check, which you can use. And what it will do um, is it will basically listen to the track and tell you. Um, how your track works to the target. So it's going to tell you, right, this is the amount, the recommended amount again that you need to reach your uh, your target level. And I'll also give you a recommended ceiling or like threshold for overs for if again you're going to Spotify or really it's all dependent on the target that you choose, which is here on the right hand side. As you can see, there's streaming targets, which are basically LUFS targets. So you've got Amazon Music, which is, you know, minus 19 luffs, Tidal, minus 14. Uh, YouTube minus 14. What I love about Smart Limit is even though it gives you good recommendations, you could still manually tweak things. You could still manually uh, tweak the attack. You can tweak the release. You can choose an auto release. And uh, what I also love about it is this channel link feature. And I think that's why um, mixes sound a lot more open when I use Smart Limit. Essentially, if you put it under 100%, then what it will do is it will start to make the left and right channel be processed independently, which if you don't know what happens when you process left and right differently, is that that will then go into your side signal, um, which can theoretically then give you more width. And I think that's a lot of the times what I hear um, when I'm listening to Smart Limit. And the channel link is it's a little bit of a secret sauce, I would say. And what I love about Smart Limit is that you don't even need to think about it <laughs> because, again, you've got your learn button and it'll kind of give you what it thinks is like kind of genre specific for like channel linking. So it does it all for you, but again, can be tweaked. Now, my favorite feature is definitely the constant gain setting, which allows you to not be biased by loudness um, when you're doing your limiting. Obviously, when you think about when you limit, what you're doing, you're raising the gain all the time. And obviously, we all know uh, in regards to loudness, when something's louder, it sounds better. So the best way to be able to judge um, how the limiting is actually affecting your mix is by listening at a constant gain level, which is really, really important, which is great for me because I could be um, near the end of the mix. I could just sit there and think, right, OK, let's push the limiter to say minus 10, minus 9, minus 8 luffs. And then I could kind of listen to the overall uh, balance of the mix and how uh, uh, the limiter affects the balance of the mix. And those are the main reasons why I love to use Smart Limit. It's more than sound, it's again functionality, 
And again, even just wee things like again, you could see in your loudness range as well. So you could see again where your um your luffs um is sitting. It, it tells you everything that you need to know. It's just a great, easy to use limiter where everything's kind of done for you. And from a workflow perspective, it just works fantastic. So yes, there you have it. Smart limit. Let's get back to the podcast. For those of you listening to this podcast on whatever streaming platform uh, MSM is just doing as a mini studio tour, which you can see <laughs> if you tune into this on YouTube, on which we are also now putting out videos alongside the audio. Oh, he's good. That's why, he? why I've got him. It's all about That's marketing. <laughs> but, but yeah, what do you so mean the, why the you've got me? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely get don't get into headphones is what i'm going to say it is totally. a, it started with and i'm i'm going to say is the guy called chris chris parkinson you bastard if you're hearing this i love you so much but you huh, he worked for Audacy. that's how it started he came to me and he was like so what do you use for headphones and at the time it was just the normal studio stuff i was like i don't care about headphones and then i tried them and then then amps and then dax i don't know can i spin this around wait hold on watch this let's see if i can make this make sense to you Let's see if I can make it make sense. So my current headphone setup goes from Trinov into uh, a Lynx, just for spitting out different formats. That's just like a converter, basically. Goes into the Neumann, because on that, you then have like a million... The EQ. Yes, yeah. so every set of headphones in here has its own EQ. I've got an EQ curve for every single yeah, pair of headphones. It's unreal. Like, honestly, uh, look, there you go. Where's all my snapshots? I don't know if that's going to be backwards or what. But anyway, so those are all my curves. That then spits that out and goes into my chord DAC, which then goes into another amplifier because I prefer the amp than the one that's built into the DAC. Why do you have it all like this? Because I want to have a remote to sit down when I'm mixing with my headphones on and I can control like crossfeed um, and things like that. Like I need all that stuff. I know it sounds mad. I couldn't mix in headphones until I realized, oh, all the headphone nerds of the world are doing this. That's how they're getting it to work. Totally. And it was the same thing as when I realized that, okay, room treatment, isolation, DSP, there is a, there's, a, there's a harmony to be had amongst them. And if you can get that bit right, not telling you to buy Trinov, not telling you to buy Sonoworks, not telling you to buy any, I don't care which one you do. I'm not interested. It's just understanding that these ingredients can help an, a shit room turn into a workable room. So I was shit on headphones, terrible. And now fast forward three, four years, I'll take a mix on a headphone any day. And it's definitely becoming more more of a thing because, I mean, I do it, again, you know, my good friend Emma does it and there's more and more engineers doing it because at the end of the day, like, as you've said, like we're all kind of in a place where not everybody has, you know, the room space or, again, can afford the rent of a studio or, again, just have the money to be able to put into like properly treating the room and then you get into the whole point of not every room is perfect. Like Ed's been having like an issue just now. He's got like a it's a low mid build up in that room. And again he's got he's tried all Trinov and the Neumann DSP and he's tried all these different speakers and Which one did you prefer? Oh Trinov destroys everything. Really? Yeah. And I'll tell you what it is. With my Neumanns and my I'm gonna do content on this, but my with Sonoworks my listening area was about the size of my head. If I went out yeah. of that it would fall apart What, what Neumanns is, are they? Uh, they were the 120s. Then okay. I've got the 750 Sub which with the MA1 mic, which is now doing my treatment with my new speakers. And the listening area is a bit wider, but it yeah. falls off in the low and top end with the phase coherence. Trinov makes the whole room a listening environment. It's unbelievable. So first thing is I don't, I'll never in my life have one Sub. It's always got to be stereo. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Just a thing. 
try it. If you can get your hands on another 750, I've actually got two 750s. You're in London, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can come and pick them up whenever you want. They're just sitting in my booth at the moment. Just try them. That'd be great. Try them out. Yeah. Try stereo. I promise you, it changes a lot of things. Okay. It's, um, I just don't believe in it. Amphion got me like that. When Amphion first came out of their bass ones and they were like, there's mono sub information is bullshit. And I was like, what? I did, again, another lesson I was learning in real time. And I was like, oh, let me try it. And it's bullshit. I just don't believe in it. Not for what I do. I'm using this. Do you know what? I've got these little 80s here. I just fucking love them with MA1. I just think it, I think it dumbs, it gets rid of the room enough and it dumbs it down enough to just where translation just becomes a thing. Like, I don't want my room to sound like you're blown away to the point of stupidity. It's that translation thing. Sometimes people will sit here, like some speakers they've put up and it's too much for me. I'm like, I've asked how to get to this restaurant and you've come and given me 52 different options of how to get there and all the different times and <laughs> what could happen and all the risk factors. And I'm like, bro, fuck off. Give me the best route. I just want to know how to get there. And so I think of speakers and these softwares like that. Trinov is amazing for like nerding out and doing all your individual curves. But if I was to tell someone who's just wants to get on with some speakers and crack on with it, I think it's a hard sell. I think it's like the most people I know that have it, they just get it in, have somebody come and set it up. But if they have a problem, then they're stuck. I know what you mean. It's getting better than I've got the old, old, old one. So the new one from what I've gathered is a bit more yeah, user friendly. The, yeah, the Nova's coming and they've redesigned yeah, the software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And made so it a lot I am talking about like Demon 12s and, yeah. you know, silly things. But yeah, and, and no doubt it sounds better. I just think that when I heard MA1, I was like, okay, I know where this world is now going, I know what we're doing we're all going to end up like this in the next five to 10. It's just going to be about who can get the, like, don't get twisted. Their thing's not perfect. It's slow. It's uh, too long yeah, to change yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. And do you know what I mean? If you press realign, you're there waiting forever. And yeah. no one wants to run ethernet cables all over the place. And there's limits to it all, but I'm using it here on the little speakers and I'm doing so much work on them. Yeah. The, the 80s so are the Neumann, Neumann's best speakers, I think, because they're, they're not, they've not got the low mid problem that I had with them in my room and they're designed to go with the sub. So they, 70, 80, they're pretty flat. These, the, I've got the 420s, but I've got the big bastard subs under them. The um, Oh, yeah. The 870s, I think they're called. Um, yeah, those were amazing. And then I stuck them on DMSDs and they became double amazing. And I was like, oh, okay. This is just getting a bit weird and fun now. Like, strange things are happening. And yeah, so they don't have any DSP, those ones. I don't need anything on them. They just work in this room. And I have that in here. Like the heads have got the DSP on them because their position's not ideal. It's just, that's all, they were only here. These big massive heads were just here initially just because people were blowing up my amphions because they're passive. So I was like, oh, I need some monster mains. And then, you know, they need a bit of help just based on the position. For some reason, these, these Neumanns in here, they measure brilliantly. Don't need anything. Right, a few geeky questions for you. Listening level, right? Are you a geek to the point where you kind of have a set, like, nope. no. So no, there's a, there isn't nope. a set DB, DBSBL? Mood-based, mood or... mood-based. Right. It's mood-based, and I will, I regulate when I realize I'm fucking up. Right. So I do more breaks than anything. So for me, it'll be breaks. Like, I literally will mix for five minutes and walk away. I just constantly turn off, just turn off five minutes, turn off five minutes, turn off and address things. So it's instead of it, it used to be solo drums, work on drums. Like that is bullshit. Yeah, you've got to do the context of the mix. You've got to, yeah. Just get everything to feel like it should. If it doesn't, you get on the phone, find out why it doesn't first. Mm -hmm. Call people. Why is that vocal not right? I don't feel anything like you're rough. So there's a lot of that bit that takes up a mix, just the getting it together. 
um, then take a and break. And what's your point um, or like your thoughts, right? Because this is something that me and Ed get quite a lot on YouTube, especially with me because like I've kind of fallen down the same rabbit hole where it's like I've got a top in DX7 Pro Plus DAC and I've got, oh, again, these like, um, not these, but um, the Hyphamin um, HE SE 1000s. And, and many people say to me, yeah, now what's the point? What What is the point in investing in all of this stuff when it's going to be crammed down and listened to in like shitty found speakers and and phones what's the point in having all this beautiful stuff that you can hear when it's when nobody's going to be able to hear it because i have to enjoy my life <laughs> fuck you that's yeah. like gordon ramsay could work in any kitchen in the world yeah and he'll still smash it but he's probably going to want his own bits and bobs just to make his day go better mm. that is it it's literally in just for me to be on planet earth and enjoy making music with the tools that i like and geek out about and if you don't like that I'm the wrong guy. Sometimes you might get me and I'm on headphones traveling mixing. I didn't do that until I was actually good at it. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't charge somebody if I was still pissing about and going, hmm, I'm not sure. No, no, no. I've got to the point now where it's comedy. It's fun. Mm -hmm. This is like, I enjoy it. I'm like, oh yeah. If I get this, I know the kind of mixes I can do them as well based on the client. I can just tell. I'm like, yeah, this one's all right. We do this on headphones. Then I get other ones where I know it's time to use a summing mixer and do all the nerdy shit because it's going to excite that person. Like I did, um, I've been working on Cass is Dead's album, a guy called Cass is Dead on XL for, we started the album in 2016. It's coming out in wow. a couple of weeks. That's my life PTSD <laughs> sorted. I'm fucked. Yeah. I'm a mess. But I remember when we started, he was like, look, I do my own videos. I'm very much into like, there's no bullshit with this guy. He's into his eighties aesthetic, his synths, his, Everything about him was had um, intention. Everything. I mean, it wasn't a. He didn't miss a nothing. So I was like, okay, if I'm gonna make this album with him, I'm gonna like excite him too and be like, all right, cool. How about we use all analog? And how about we get like a tape machine? Because you want it to be like the '80s, right? And let's go do. So and he was like, oh, this is sick. This is amazing. It was a stupid thing to do on my end because I ended up stuck in with pieces of equipment that I couldn't touch for eight years. <laughs> like there are signs on EQs in here that says, do not fucking touch. Cause it's just on Cass's album and I can't use it on anything else. I bought free curve benders at one oh, point because I was like, I'm trapped. Cheap. I'm trapped. Well, I was trapped. I couldn't move them. I was like, oh, this is bullshit. But exactly, I'm, as I'm saying this, I realize that I'm my own worst enemy because I made that album last eight years. Yeah? But it felt right at the time. And it was like, he was excited. I was excited. Um, and then I get other guys that don't like this stuff and they're just, they want the speed. They just want to know mm. that if they ring me, I can get them a bounce done within a day or two, max. Like maybe even the same day. If he's skeptical, it's the same day. Em, where are you? Uh, I need this. He needs it in the next 10 minutes. He needs it now. So I know with Skepta, we never use any analog, ever. Nothing, zero. I might throw on a mix bus as I'm bouncing things at the very end just to give the mastering engineer something. And that's just because of the younger version of me that still wants to just see, <laughs> can it be better? Bollocks, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. That's really interesting I'm to know that you're confident to have both. You know, you can do the hybrid thing, do the plug-in thing. Doesn't bother you. Started, it's all about the started result. in the box. Started in the box, chased equipment, lost equipment. It's, I've done the, the loop so many times and I've been such an advocate for each one. If you met me in 2013, I would have laughed at you and said, analog, what's that in the background there? You madman. I remember when I took this room 
I took this room off of um, Rory Cushnan and he had mixed Ed Sheeran's album in this room. And when I came in here, I was like, why have you got all this stuff? Fast forward eight years or nine years and sometimes he just messages me laughing at me. Like, Look what happened to you. And I'm like... You got the bug. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got fucked. But it's, it's, there's no... My, all I give a shit about is that thing I was saying about the filter from your computer to your ear, your intentions and your decision making. If you get that bit consistent, you can start to build up your learning. Your learning is the thing that's going to make you good. It's going to build up your taste. You cannot get better without that consistency. I see guys that walk around going to studio to studio traveling, thinking they're going to do a mix there. And I'm like, okay, you might get a couple bangers out of it. That's if the key of the song is in the part of the room where the root note isn't where there's a null. You don't know That's if there's a, a null point. in that room, do you? Mm -hmm. so, so good luck to you. Good luck to you. I've done that. I've done Britannia Road, amazing mixes. Then it's not there anymore, so I can talk shit about it. The room <laughs> sounded like ass. It did. It wasn't good for subs at all. But if you got the song and it was like the root note was not in that dip around 80 to 100, it was fine. It was always going to slap. It was going to hit very hard. So you'd be confused. You're like, wait, but that mix was really good. And this one wasn't. So instead of me knowing that it was the room, the dip, the consistency, I'd blame it on, I don't know, I think you chose a bad kick. <laughs> and, and we would be looking for the wrong problems. Like it was the chasing our tail. So even now, yeah, moving studio is such a big deal for me because I know that's the beginning of a new couple months of no working. You can't do no yeah. work. You've got to get back to where you can work. You can't charge people. I know engineers in the States when I was over there in 2012 that were moving from analog to in the box and I was witnessing in real time they were falling apart because the clients that I was with were like, this sounds like shit. His last album sounded amazing. What's happening? It was because these engineers were making the transition in the box mm -hmm. and they hadn't, they changed their rooms, they've changed their process. They haven't gone through what I've gone through. Everyone, they were like born in A rooms that sounded amazing. Yeah. Spoon fed, like, they didn't have to think about the shit we've had to think about, which is my Barnet studio, the, the booth was underneath a staircase. You would hear people running to go and take a shit. <laughs> so like, I've dealt with the worst of the worst. And those are songs that went out and did very well. We're talking about things that are, you know, that charted, that were just, you know, if only you knew the truth. And it's like, that makes you walk around with a little bit of like, nothing can scare me in studios yeah. anymore. It doesn't. As long as I've got... The, the commercial rooms in London don't like me because I used to go there with a mic and measure all their rooms and make a note of it and save it. <laughs> that's what oh I think I God, would yeah. be like. If I was in London, that's what I think I'd be like going in, just like going to Metropolis and be like, right, okay, we're going to do an AB today. Right, okay. Literally, <laughs> Metropolis was one of them. I went and measured all their rooms when I was there. They thought I was nuts. The engineer Streaky used to have a room there and he thought I was crazy. He's like, bro, are you okay? And I'm like, I want to know if I trust you to master my song <laughs> in this room. Because I know you, I know you're good. I just need to know if the, if the result is you or the room at this point. Because some people weren't thinking like that at the time. They were just doing the work like I was. And then all of a sudden now, you throw me anywhere, I'm going to judge the room. I'm going to listen to it. If I don't like it, I'm going to measure it. Then I'm going to see what I can hear and I'm going to understand it. If there's anything I can do, I'll do it. Whether it's moving speakers, lifting and floating and rotating and whatever I can do. If I can get some DSP in there, Sonar Works, Arc, one of these things, I'll do it. If I can't, I'm probably just going to record and track and then maybe use some headphones and just wing it. See what you've just spoke about there? That is just like years of ear training. You're training your ears. You're training your top bin. You know what I mean? It's just constant ear training.
Maybe you can put a screenshot on the thing when we put when you put this out. I will find some text I got from an intern in Atlanta. And he messaged me and he was like, oh, I'm proud to see you've done well, da 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 And he said, uh, I knew something weren't right about you, M, when like, you were coming in all the rooms and you refused to mix until you'd spent three hours moving speakers. <laughs> and I, that, he said, I used to watch you doing it, thinking you're either crazy or amazing. <laughs> and like, he sent me that and I was like, oh my God, I didn't think it was weird. I thought that's what you had to do. Like, it's just when I was going through that phase of like, I don't trust rooms, I don't trust rooms. Obviously, I don't have that in here now, but... If you put, I went and did um, some end up stuff in Ireland in Grouse Lodge, right. and I took uh, 150s, the Neumanns at the time. Why did I take them? Just because I wanted to throw them up and tune the room. Without, I didn't want to even question it. I was like, I just need. Some, I'm not going to bring Trinov. I'm not going to bring Sonar Works and trust what speakers they have. I didn't know. I was just like, right, take my 150s, MA1. I then after that, I had like another bus. For, my, for the mains, where once I heard MA1 doing what it did, and I was like, okay, my references feel good, I tuned the mains to feel like it as well. And was like, okay, let's get the mains to reflect the little ones just a bit, even if it's with a stupid EQ in the master bus. I don't care. And I have to remember to do it. It's fine. I'm not, I can't go in a room and just mix. I have to do this thing where I understand it. But it makes sense. It makes, it makes otherwise, you have to let me, otherwise, you have to let me take it home. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen engineers. I won't say names. The church studios, they're putting mattresses, blankets everywhere. Big people that know what they're doing. Serious people. that, And it makes me feel like, okay, I'm not going crazy. I'm not going crazy. You know, anytime I hear the stories of these engineers, I'm like, it's the same story as you. You just, you can't. The amount of people have tried to give me their room in London and I've gone there and gone, mine's better. Because I've spent the time on tuning it to what I know. I've got references that don't sound good. I have references that sound bad and on purpose. I want to know that when I turn that up, it hurts my head. I want to know that when I turn this up, there is no bass. When that one should be have too much bass. Like I, I, my references are not to sit there and go, yeah, this sounds good. It's to almost to irritate me and find out what's yeah. wrong, what's happening in the room. It doesn't take long now. Honestly, you throw me in a room, it's an hour max and we'll be up and running. But I can't, I can't not do that. I care more about that than anything. I care about that than I don't give a shit about anything. And it's really interesting. It's it's good for me even hearing that because I think what that shows is that, you know, in terms of being a mixing engineer, a professional mixing engineer, you know, it is all about your ears. It isn't about anybody else's ears. It's about your ears. You know what things should sound like. And I think every time I've ever spoken, you know, to somebody who does this professionally, they know what a record should sound like to them. And many people have sat there and said to me, Paul, that takes years and years. But probably, I don't think a lot of them have the dedication that you do. Maybe they do. But um, it makes absolute sense why. I mean, even if you think about it and it'd be like turning around to Lewis Hamilton and saying, right, just go and drive in that motor. He'd be like, but I don't know it. I don't understand it. You know what I mean? It's like everything in life. He'll give it a go. Yeah. He'll give it a go and he'll probably do a lot better than most people, but... And still beat everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He will, but it's, it's, a, it's a level of finesse that you just, you have to... Mixing is flow state. If you really want to get into it, you have to get into a flow state. You have to stop worrying about this stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to get this equipment shit out. That's why I said to you earlier, like, if something fails on me, I don't really give it a second chance. It's gone. I haven't got time. Mm -hmm. I want to work. Music to me is like... Is a constant, especially now with mixing, where it's changed a little bit. Of you were at a point where people used to send it to you because you had a sound, and these people had a way of doing things. So like Spike could make things cut through on radio like no one else. Same as Serban. Manny was like the crossover of doing the hip hop stuff, and as well, there's everyone had their little thing. 
not little, that sounds patronizing. Um, but it's become now like it needs to be like the rough consistently. It's like the, the rough is the, the new guideline yeah, because everyone yeah. can buy a ticket to music. So anyone can make a song and then you don't have the right to tell them their art is wrong anymore because they'll just say, well, I wanted it to sound like that. That has made things a bit, it's different now the way you do it. So constantly going between the rough and the main mix and trying to figure that out. If your room is adding a randomized number to that as well, and your converters are adding a randomized number to that as well, that is literally like an accountant having a broken calculator. It's like, I don't care what you do, mate. You're going to fuck something up. Somewhere, one number wrong, we're fucked. That's a great so, analogy. But, but I, I always said it. It's like, you're doing research. You're just always learning. What if I told you every day you did that research, I came and told you one of those pages is wrong and you don't know what one it is. Your research is going to make you go, you go nuts. Yeah. You go crazy. So like making this where you understand it, then you can mix mm -hmm. because then it becomes down to your taste and, and then you can get into the like, oh, how did I use that limiter or how did I use that EQ? Like, I don't really like a lot of these, like when they say things like, well, people ask me, like, what did you do on that vocal? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. I sat in the chair that I sit in every day and I tweaked it until it sounded good amongst all the other stuff in the song. And that is just and that is mixing, is it? That is like. But yeah. if you think that I sat there and said, "Well, every time I do that, I do this," and then you need to boost that. Oh, but you can't boost that there because you know you need to leave that six dB of headroom because the mastering engineer said it or some bullshit rule. I don't give a mate. I couldn't care less. Mastering engineers, you're getting limited mixes off me. Good luck. I'm. I my job is to make the mastering engineer have nothing yeah, to do. Good, that's, that's what good I'm trying point. to do. I want you to have absolutely jack shit to do. Joe Laporta has done a few things and he's rung me and said, M, this is basically just a transfer. Like there's nothing to do on this. Good. That's what I want. Because I don't want it to change again. We've just spent fucking four revisions getting it exactly a certain way. Do you think they want it different now? Oh my God, yeah, you're yeah, give me anxiety. That's a great point. Anxiety, mate. So I, I'm, I don't like to credit myself as mastering, but I basically master as well. And I always have. I just don't like to say it. I think it's... Again, that's the ego thing. Mixed and mastered by it. Oh, shut up. Just make the song, man. Just fucking... I wish credits and all this stuff wasn't even a thing. I wish it was based on word of mouth and how hard you worked and not how much you can blag your way through shit. Hey there, Ed here. You may recognise my voice from doing all the other Distro Kid advert segments. At this time, I didn't want to just do a typical advert talking about stuff to do with DistroKid. I actually wanted to give you my feedback about the service because I genuinely do use DistroKid for uploading my music. And I know Paul does, and it turns out Dan Worrell does as well. I've used DistroKid since 2019. As you can see on the screen, I have six releases so far. It is genuinely super easy to use. The tracks get into Spotify within 24 hours, which is remarkable. Apple Music takes a little bit longer. I'd suggest giving that 10 to 14 days. The hyperfollow links are really useful for advanced promotion of your tracks. And the promo cards are really great visual aids for social media promotion. Ooh, I particularly like that one. DistroKid collect all the royalties from your streaming services. And here you can find an itemized breakdown of where all your income has come from. There's also a DistroKid referral where you can save your friends $10 per sign-up by creating your own VIP referral link. How, from the looks of it, is the outside looking in, like in terms of the way that things were done, in terms of kind of becoming a mixing engineer to the way like they're done now, do you kind of feel that it's less about the craft and it's more about the tools more than ever? 
Total the opposite. Yeah, right, okay. Total opposite now. I think the tools mean nothing mm -hmm. now and you are just finding excuses. You can go, like, as I showed you that silly mic. Yeah. That was recording songs that I still think, I listen to the vocals and some of them like, mm. that was a wardrobe with coats on the side as your padding and a pencil mic. And somehow it worked. And it was all free Kajurus, whatever they were called, plugins. They were free. Mm -hmm. K-J-H-E-A-R-U-S or some stupid, I don't know what they were. But they were all free plugins and there was 10 of them. That's how I mixed everything. On a program called Crystal Audio Engine, they had 16 channels and it was, it was free again because I didn't have any money. So that excuse is out the window. Um, an Apollo now or any of these small interfaces is fine, is cool. I might, if we're talking, this is if you're trying to make music as an artist producer. If you're talking as a mixer who wants to specifically become a mix engineer, of course you're going to have to do what I said, which is start to learn to listen, mm -hmm. learn your room, care about all the bits of your decision making, the filter basically, from your file to your eardrum, what's in between, your speaker stands matter, where your speakers are matter, all those little things. Yeah, that's a, that's a you're going to have to figure that out. But that doesn't mean you have to buy a £10,000 speakers. That just means look after the £100 speakers you've yeah. got and make sure you set them up properly and you really give a shit about the things that you think you shouldn't. Having one speaker here and one there, and it's like, what? Well, how's that going to work? The craft of it is, I think nowadays, if you was to try and say you're going to start again and become a mixer, it's almost repeat what I did, which is find artists and work for free. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get in working in a studio now, and the only way you are going to get in by doing that is by finding an artist who likes you and takes you on as their go-to yeah. reliable person. So they are going to find you. I, I've seen this happen so many times. People I know, they used to come up to me saying, oh, I love you, you're so sick, and this and that, looking up to what I did, have become little mini me's in their world, they're not mini to anything. They're the guy. Their artist thinks that person is the MSM. They don't even know who I am because he's been consistent, he's been listening and paying attention to what that artist wants, being reliable. That's all. That will get you further than how good you are with an EQ. It really will because these artists just need their, mute, their ideas out of their head and on, in people's ears. And your job is to then do that while learning on the job nowadays. You, can't, you haven't got the luxury of, I'm going to go and study this whole thing and then become an intern. And I, I don't think so. Maybe in the States it works like that, but in London it yeah. doesn't. In London it's like you better get stuck in and prove it on the job. And I think that's a big thing that we've kind of done notice with this podcast is that the only, for us, the only way that you can get better at mixing is by mixing. I mean, many, many yeah. people do this thing where they're like, yeah, no, no, but I've got to buy analog and I've got to buy this and I've got to buy this plugin and this plugin came out. I'm like, just fucking mix, just mix. And I mix won't and buy mix a plugin unless it comes in on a session. My rule is I don't buy any plugins unless it comes in on mm. a session. I can't because it's too easy to have friends. People like you, you two little devils <laughs> text me saying, oh, have you tried the new? <laughs> yeah, great. Fucking 180 pound later. <laughs> <sighs> I can't live like that. My, my friend Charlie, Charlie Holmes, like he works a lot with Spike. Hit me and him. There was a period where it was just like, you have become an expense, not a friend. <laughs> All we do is ring each other and tell each other how to spend each other's money. And it's like, I can't live like that forever. So no, I don't, yeah, I, mate. I don't even buy equipment anymore. What you want to do is become a YouTuber and <laughs> Guess uh, for never free. pay for plugins again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I would ever do the YouTube thing. I don't know. I, don't, I, talk, I can talk shit for Britain. And that's what worries me. <laughs> my concern is, from my perspective doing it, it's a graft in the wrong direction. I, I want to be mixing and recording. 
YouTube is a distraction. Yeah, that's a good point. At the moment, for yeah, other reasons we don't go into it. We don't need to go into it. At the moment, it's a temporary necessity uh, while I transition a few things in life. But I, I mean, I've learned a lot doing it. I met Paul doing it. I met all the produced like a pro guys, went to LA. If your brain doesn't do what mine does, which just fucking, I'm a hater in some respects. I look at these things and I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Oh, those people are weird. Like, I can't. If you can get that turned off in your brain, bro, do it all. I wish I could, but I'm just wired a certain way. I'm just wired to be, I'm an introvert that wants to be in studio, but can be an extrovert, but in small doses. And yeah, like, that's me. You know. <laughs> if I could, I would yeah, be in the studio listen, all fucking day, every day, in my mank, in my studio it's cave. It's not good, though. It's me. not good. Honestly, yeah. it's so not good. This is, so like when I, mixing has done that though. So there is that negative side to it, which is you do kind of, sometimes I have to remind myself, go to someone's show. Mm -hmm. Jump on a tour with someone. Go and have some late night. Like upstairs now, Chipmunk's doing a session. I'm going to go upstairs in a little while and have a drink and have a smoke. I don't even really drink a smoke, but I'm just going to entertain it to just keep the social side going as well because mixing, you can isolate yourself. You could just be, no pun intended. <laughs> we could just sit and be like, I can't talk right now, I'm mixing. I can't talk right now, I'm mixing. And it's like, bro, I, people want to come in studio. They want to record stuff. Like So like recording has become... It's gone full circle again where it's almost like there was a period where we were separating it all. Now I feel artists need a recording engineer. They need their person. Yeah. So there's that to look at and say, okay, maybe there is you finding an artist through this, what you're doing here. You might have to find one that you just believe in. I didn't know Skepta was going to blow up. But you took the. You mate. gotta take a chance. Fucking... You gotta take a chance. No, I didn't even take a chance. He's my friend. I can't get rid of these people. <laughs> these are people that we're going, you know, raving together. We're meeting up and doing everything. They're just. He just does music. I do music. We did music, and here we are. <laughs> but I know how important that stuff is to this because if you do just, oh, I'm in studio, just mixing. Eventually, you'll have nothing to mix. Yeah, very true. Because where have you been? Getting involved, where in your case, maybe it is YouTube that you have to do, or maybe it will be, I don't know, um, going and doing some recording sessions, going, following somebody on tour and saying, I'll come and record you on your tour and just do this for you. Like there's a million ways to do it, but it isn't just sitting down in front of our computers yeah, yeah. with Pro Tools open. It's not, it's not going to come to you there. This is good. I, I think this is sick what you're doing. Wish I could do it. So um, there's two questions we always ask guests, particularly the mix engineer guests. Uh, one, which I think you've answered, which is, what, how would you recommend or what would you recommend younger people do to get in the business? But we've just spoken yeah, about it. Yeah, 100%. Find an artist that you fuck with. Do what you have to do to get your money, as in get a job if you need to. I don't care. Make a deal with them to work for, I don't know, X amount per month or a certain amount of date, whatever. But align yourself with musicians. You are a, an engineer, unless you're making beats and writing music yourself, an engineer is there to serve the artists to enable the artists. You're like a translator from technical to art. As yeah. soon as you forget that and you become this, like, it's about me, you forgot why they're mm, going to love you. Good point. I tell this story to people quite a bit and just to like make them realize that I'm not, I'm not just making this theory up of mine. I've seen it. I can name a load of people. But when I was in Atlanta in Tree Sound, one day we'd slept in the studio till really late. And I said, oh, we can't bother to go home. We're just going to stay overnight. So we stayed overnight. It's like eight in the morning. I'm not supposed to be there overnight. Someone's banging on the door and, I've, and it's like the side door around the back and I've gone and opened it and there's just a guy in the rain. He's like, oh, I'm here for my, my, my job interview or some shit. And I was like, I don't work here. 
I'm just an engineer from London in Atlanta. What the fuck? Come in. He could have been robbing the place, whatever. <laughs> Turns out he gets a job there and he starts working there. He drove down from uh, Carolina or something. He was, he was cool. He was a good guy. One day... He remembers this. He always reminds me. He says, I ate your chicken wings and you shouted at me. I don't remember shouting at anyone, but cool. He's got his intern story of how I was the big bad wolf, yeah? Whatever. Um, we kept in touch. Um, and then one summer, years, years, years later, he'd stayed working in the studio. He came to London and he assisted me for like a couple of weeks in my studio here. It was a bit of a full circle moment. And I was like, oh, this is sick. And um, his name's Cool Deep. I was like, I think he was in this like transition period where he was talking about maybe wanting to work here permanently because he had family here. And he was like, look, man, I, I don't mind like maybe moving here, maybe doing this, maybe doing that. And in the passing conversation, I'd brought up that like, or sorry, he'd brought up that he'd been working on the Dreamville J. Cole project in when he was in Atlanta, in Tree Sound. He'd worked on it. And he wanted some help with just like advice on the business side of crediting and just like, how does it work if I've worked on this? And I was just talking to him, but in my head, I was like, wait a second. You want to come and assist me in London mixing for people, but you're working on J. Cole's album. Oh, but I was just an assistant engineer or whatever, whatever. I'm paraphrasing this fuck, but like, I was like, wait a second. And I just, I remember we parked up where, where I was dropping him off and I was like, look, what's going on? Like, tell me the story. And he said, basically, when he was leaving, they'd swap numbers or something. And J. Cole noticed his area code and was like, oh, you're from Carolina, North Carolina, whatever. Turns out, Cool Deep's older brother was in the same school as J. Cole. They now clicked. Fast forward, J. Cole has now hired Cool Deep as his engineer. It, I'm not saying I, I didn't take no credit for this. That was going to happen regardless. But I knew at the time I was telling him, go the fuck back and chase that situation. Don't care if you have to work for free. I don't give a shit. Well, if, if you two got on and the work went well, you should be over there following success these clues, man. You, you don't need to be here. You don't need to be here. And like I said, fast forward, and now his job is that. He's in. He's working. He's in the industry working. He's found a job. I don't know what his current situation is, but that's been for the past few years. And I, there's so many of these people that I can name where an artist has met an engineer. The engineer hasn't let them down when needed. He took a liking to that. Now they work together. And then they come up off the fact that, oh, I was such and such as engineer. I yeah. was such and such as engineer. That is the quickest way to get real world knowledge, it's the quickest way to get your name out there because you don't even have to do the work. Someone's doing it for you. It just works hand in hand. It might, it just might not be paid as well as you want at the beginning. Okay, what would you say to those people who think trying to find an artist and grow with them is kind of a one in a million shot in the dark? What are you talking about? I could keep naming people. Okay. I can keep doing it. I won't because this is people's business but I can keep naming them. You're talking rubbish. You haven't got out and got, you haven't gone and done it enough. Like Edward Justice League was getting on planes and sleeping on couches and doing anything he could to be around the right crowds. Me, the same thing, following Skepta around the world, Jamie, every show, whatever we need to do, studio, four in the morning finish, back in at 10 a.m., no problem, we're just going to do it. it. That's how it worked. Nobody ever came to me and said, oh, you did that um, P. Diddy mix, that was amazing, let me give you my album. They don't care. And I think that's, um, what, what's really I've kind of taken from that is the importance of, you know, being able to create your own opportunities and you're only going to create your own opportunities by going out there, networking and, you know, like if you have to do stuff for free, then do stuff for free and, you know, getting to a point where I think like what's... You're going to have to do stuff yeah, for free. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have to. And I suppose it's, 
I think that's something that I that I think many people struggle with is that you know I mean they might do one good record and they think that they're going to make a career off that one big artist. But you're right, like who's going to really like who listens to like it could be a Beyonce track. I mean, who's going to listen to that one Beyonce track and go, I wonder who mixed that Beyonce track? It's not going to happen. You know what I mean? You, you've got to create your own opportunities and speak to people and networking. It probably does happen in some capacity with A&Rs maybe, hearing things and going, oh, I wonder who did that? Maybe. But like, I just know that if there was somebody young now saying to me, look, I want to get into this, I would be literally telling them to be, I don't, even if it is, go work in a studio. Just do it for the inter- Don't think you're going to be sitting there and people are going to be paying you thousands of pounds to make songs. Yeah. You're going to find somebody that you're going to click with and make some really good music. And then off the back of that, then people are going to want to work with you. And they're not going to know why either. They're not going to say, oh, it's because you made the snare amazing. Or it's just because <laughs> you was a part of it. That's really what it comes down to. No one knows what I did on the songs that I've going to be credited on. You've got no idea if the rough was delivered to me 99% yeah. perfect. You don't know. You, you weren't there. It sounds like I'm just, it's like an easy thing to say, like just go find an artist and blow up with them. But I think that's the way things are going. I don't think there's going to be a brand name engineer in the next 10 years. And do you think it's easier? Do you think it's easier with today's social media that people could, can just reach out and can just like hit somebody up and DM them and maybe strike up a bond with them? And Yes, yes. I've done, this is what I mean. If you build your name and brand up, to the point where people can see that you're in love with it and that you're good at it and they like your work, they will work with you because they can reach yeah. out now. I've got, I did an album this year for someone like in Colombia. He just reached out to me online and was like, I don't, even, I don't know how he found me, don't know what. These things happen and it's, how does he know? He, when I speak to him and I find out, oh yeah, you worked on this, you worked on that. But he, again, if I said to him, what did I do on that song? He doesn't know. Was there no a single point when you knew you were ready and you were so confident? in your abilities that even if you were getting rejected or mixes no. declined, you were just no. happy and okay. No, I can't think of, um, because I still treat, like if I get given an album now, I'm still up against the new 24 year old kid that yeah. wants my place. I'm up against you two potentially talking about Nyquist <laughs> and all the new plugins. I don't even know about it. Boy, it boils down to, can you make it sound like the artist wants? How are you going to get, cause the A&R is no, maybe they'll have an input, but the artist is going to get the final say these days because A&Rs can't be bothered. Not everyone can be bothered. Let me rephrase. But then that means that at that point, you better understand artists and you better really understand them. I, I've sat in rooms. This is what I used to say that I know how to not piss off a client because I've sat with people like Skep, Jamie, Wiley, Chip, where other engineers have wound them up and they've come back and gone, oh man, that session was so shit, bro. Em, do you know what they were doing? They were trying to like, listen to it. Like, and then I would go, oh, okay, cool. Don't do that. It's It's... You learn a lot more from being friends and in the room than being the, the engineer that no one really cares about. I've been in situations where we've gone, we're like in another country and we're maybe working with feature artists or just people from the area and they've come in the studio and they've spoke to me a certain way. And I've seen my friends pull them up and be like, whoa, 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 he's with us. He doesn't work here. You, like, Don't be talking to him like he's staff. And then you realize, oh, these people don't even, some people don't even care. They just, you're an engineer, mm. you're replaceable. They see it as just a person that's doing the job. But it's owning that and being like, nah, sorry, I'm me, I'm M, and I'm sick wherever I go. I'm good at what I do. I'm confident. Where Even if I'm fucking up, I'll say sorry and I'll fix it. Like, I'm just, I don't know how to explain it, but like, I just don't have it. You can't say anything bad about me because I'll probably say it before you do. <laughs> and I'm going to walk in the room with my flaws out like everybody. 
And that attitude as an engineer will get you somewhere. Yeah. If you're just a human and not a little robot that presses buttons and talks about, oh, I can't do that because, oh, shit, no, I can't, technical, technical. Shut up. I've done that. I've been that guy. Scrambling in sessions because I've made a mess of my room and I've wired up too many things. I don't know how to just, oh, like, engineers are dicks. They're dicks. <laughs> They're not humans. They're not humans. <laughs> they think they're some superior nerds, yeah? You're not. Fucking help make the song or go away. And it is about the song at the end of the day. It is, is it? It's all about the song. It's all about the artist. It's all about the song. We forgot that, man. I'm working on a song today, and somebody said to me, make the vocals loud and on top. And at first, my initial reaction was, oh, how are you telling me to do my job? And, and I stopped myself, and I was like, wait, shut the fuck up. What if he wants it loud and on top? Yeah. Now you're supposed to use your, your skill set to do that well. That's what he's asking you for. Right. He's not, and it's like always reminding yourself that. And if that was Skepta in this case, I wouldn't have even thought that initial thought. Mm -hmm. But it's because for a second I thought, ah, oh, maybe I know more than him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Chill out. Was there any one moment in your career that you can attribute to being quite pivotal in terms of it was maybe a very negative experience for you? Maybe you got some criticism you lost an opportunity anything that comes to mind that you then learned from and were able to pivot into a massive positive that you look back and think okay that was a turning point for me there's some i'm thinking of i can't talk about because they're other <laughs> people's business but it was so the first thing was losing some mixes to spike was rattled me that was when i went <laughs> oh <laughs> shit yeah like what, what even is this in recording sessions, like with people in the room, there's been, a, there's been a few of those moments where it's just like, maybe I'm burnt out from mixing all week and now I've got to do a late one. And I'm just a bit too tired and I'm a bit slow on Pro Tools for some reason. Or it can be silly, like passive smoking. If everyone's smoking in the room and I'm accidentally getting high and I don't want to, it's things like that. It's just dumb shit. But again, I can laugh those things off with people in the room and be like, you idiots, man, I'm fucking stoned. I need to go outside, man, shit. Like, and I'll laugh it off rather than sitting there making mistake after mistake, being, just being overprepared. Like, if I know I'm going to a session somewhere, just make sure everything's, you know, batteries are charged on everything and you've got your headphones and you've got your hard drive. Okay, sorry, there you go, hard drives, backing up, get a NAS system. That's like the one thing that has caught me and I've gone, uh-oh, and I've really fucked up where I've just lost a hard drive or damaged one or a hard drive just started to crap out and I'm like, uh-oh, when was the last time this got backed up or copied? If I've been spending three days working off of it, you know, things like that. Those ones have been, there's been loads of them, so I can't even name you one. It's yeah, so something that I'm kind of struggling with and it's something that I think I may be overanalyzing too much. Monocompatibility, right? How much do you oh. care about monocompatibility? Is it a thing that you care about? Is it a thing that you've kind of got certain ways of dealing with it? Going back to what you said a minute ago about how many fuck-ups have you happened, there's, oh God, there was one of them. Just one, I remember being getting a call from an A&R and it was, it was getting played on Radio 1. He's like, where's the strings gone? Right. And I was like, why are they ducking every time? This, they had some weird MS compression shit going on over there. It was doing something really weird where every time the kit came in, we were losing the strings. And I was like, what the hell? That happened to me real time. I do care, but I'm not obsessed with it. I tend to like, I can hear things if they're too wide. My brain will just automatically go and check. Solo it, is it out of phase? Okay, cool. Do a little check. Does it affect me? No, moving on. If it does affect me, I use um, uh, Dr. MS or DRMS, whatever it's called. Yeah, it lets you take a bit of side signal, add it to the center, delay it, filter it, 
take a bit of the middle, put it to the side to let it filter it. Doesn't work every time, but that was the first one I started using. There's a million other things. Acoustica, I've got a cool one. You can just bring things in if you want, you know, just mm -hmm. narrow it. Like there's loads of different things you can do, but I don't even know how to explain what I'm trying to say, but like, if that problem comes up, I will just freestyle on the spot. I've got 10 right, okay. things I'm going to try, but I can't tell you, you should do these 10 things because probably yeah, yeah, only yeah. four of them are right out of the 10. I'm just, they're in my head and I just have to go through this process to figure it out. And I'm not like as nerdy as I am and can keep, keep up with everything. I'm not nerdy with why I did it. I'm looking at this session now. I have no idea why I'm doing some of the stuff in here. I'm over compressing things. I'm putting, I've got, a, I've got um, RX mouth declicker on a snare because it must've been doing something that I liked. Must've been getting rid of some, something at mm -hmm. the top that I just liked, God knows. But you'd look at that and the younger me would have overanalyzed that and gone, oh my God, look what he's doing. And so every snare I then got would have had RX 10 on it. That's the yeah. shit that I don't like to tell people why, why I did this or why I did that, because I know you're going to go and add it on everything and lose yourself. Yeah. And you probably That's haven't even got point. a good sounding room. So what you're doing is all wasted anyway. Like, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm useless at teaching people how to mix because I don't even know how to mix myself, I think. Probably going to say that that's probably enough, enough for us today because I now want to go to London now, right? That I want to continue this podcast episode and I want to take it to London and I want to really go to London and I want you to fucking test the shit out of me, right? That's what I want you to do and I want to like properly geek out. That's what we're going to do. Did you, am I right in saying that when you did your test, when you was doing the converter test versus hardware, mm -hmm. I can't remember, but did you, you are, am I right in saying you did do like a round trip, then compare the plug-in and hardware? Uh, the one I did was, was the Access Analog Lynx Aurora. Um, I yeah. put it through an Audient and then I put it through the Lynx Aurora and then um, I then did a null, and then I seen like what the actual transparency of the rim trip was. That's what I did. I'll do it to you like when we're here. But like you, if I'm going to compare a plugin to hardware, the plugin version has to go out of the, like through the conversion process once as well for mm, me to actually do a real yeah, test sense. for you. If that makes sense. There's a million, you know. There's a. I, I use the Lynx Aurora. I think that thing is ridiculous but anyway basically take two sign uh take two signs 18 and 19 and look at the intermodulation distortion between all these things like test that versus your audience or your your it's not just running things in and out it's when things start working together as music that i find converters right. will do something that we do converter testing here when you're ready trust me i have yeah let's do it more converters than anyone needs in any room clocks and stuff as well like wait till you start hearing the antelope clocks as well and oh yeah great on that bombshell ed i'm going to say it this week on that bombshell i think it is the perfect time um to let him um you know let his hair down go upstairs <laughs> make some music let your hair down um but honestly man um, i think this episode alone is just full of absolute gold i think you know what you've shared is really 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 important and people need to hear it. People need to hear the importance of, you know, the psychological part of mixing and how important it is to, you know, focus on the artist and how you get on with the artist and the relationships that you have with the artist. And okay, there's technical aspects of it, oh, but yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. national, yeah, there's there's a huge, huge, um, almost emotional why I said part you, of it that comes. It's why I said to you when we spoke last week about let's do this conversation now and we'll do a technical one we will do one i will yeah. out tech whoever you want it's fine <laughs> it's fine 
Yeah, Ed, I'll let you finish, right? Because you fucking you push, you forced me to do the intro, right? So you're ending this, right? You <laughs> volunteered. End it. Fucking lie. <laughs> end it. End it. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been the working audio tools. A huge thanks to MSM Engineer for coming on and spilling the beans, giving us some real insights and inspiration there. Don't forget, you can get thirty percent off your DistroKid subscription using the link in the show notes or the YouTube video description. Find us anywhere. There'll be all sorts of links in both uh, show notes and description. Again, it's been emotional. I really enjoyed that, gents. Thank you very much. See you on the next one. Bye-bye.